Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Yes, hi everybody, it's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy, live, online and on podcast on this this last day of summer. Uh, uh, we, we did have a summer, didn't we? I mean, uh, it might sound a bit rich coming from an Englishman, but what happened to all that, that string of 40 degree days and the parks all browning off and that sort of thing? Yes, La Nina, you've got to love you. And for this next hour, we are going completely COVID-free. <laughs> yes, there are medical matters happening in the world other than that pesky little virus. Um, we'll have Prudence Deer talking about some recent research on eating disorders, what works and what doesn't. Rainbow Doc will be, um, will be talking about children raised by same-sex couples. And finally, for those who are restarting the gym and sports after all the COVID lockdowns, misdiagnosis will have a look at injury risks and, and whether all that stretching and bending that people do in the locker room actually makes any difference. And helping me here in the studio, I have not, not one but two colleagues. First up, the irrepressible panel beater, without whom none of this would be possible. Panel Beater, good morning. How's yourself? Good morning, Dr. Nick. Wonderful to see you. Lovely to be in the studio with you. And, yeah. And alongside me, reacquainting himself with both the studio and the microphone, please welcome back to Triple R, Moto. Hi, Moto. Do you want to tell us who you are and why you're here? Thank you, Dr. Nick. It's a real pleasure to be back. I was actually thinking back um, last weekend. Uh, I've been on the show on and off for about seven, eight years, but took a bit of a hiatus. I've uh, sort of snuck in, snuck out here and there, and uh, it's a pleasure to be back. There's the great opportunity where I'll be giving some um, assistance to um, Dr. Mao's Dr. Doolittle show, who is um, taking a small hiatus. Yes, where's, so where's he off to? I believe he's up to the tropical north. He's gone tropo. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like Doolittle, doesn't it? It does sound like Doolittle. Um, I, would, I would have thought that um, Doolittle's had enough in the way of sabbaticals over the years, hasn't he? But maybe it's time for another one. I don't think one can never get enough. <laughs> no, he's uh, going to learn about tropical medicine and how mental health care is provided in indigenous and rural communities. And, is, uh, and your background is also psychiatry. I am a psychiatrist. I work in a big hospital in Melbourne. I work in private practice. I do teaching. I do research. I manage teams. There's plenty more, but that's enough for now on a Sunday morning. Well, wonderful to have you back on Triple R and on the airwaves. So we'll have you joining in with us and having a few questions and comments. Um, Before we go on to that, we are going to have the traditional Triple R radiotherapy news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And on the phone, we have Prudence, dear. Prudence, how are you? Oh, I'm great, Nick. I hope you are too. And I just wanted to point out to you, Nick, that actually if you... This would have been a COVID-free show, but you mentioned COVID. 
damn it, I've been caught out before we've even begun. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry yeah, about no, that. Wait, uh, yeah, we'll try and keep it. And we are, of course, talking about the post-lockdown stuff at the end. But never mind, we're going to go COVID-free for this segment. Let's, because let's see what we can do. You tell us what's in yeah. the news, Prudence. OK, well, look, the key thing, as far as I'm concerned, with this month was Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. Now, some of, hopefully some of our listeners were aware that there was a campaign going on through, um, you know, community service announcements on TV and across the web and Facebook and so on. Um, it's the 28th, as you pointed out, of the month, so I guess this was my last chance to get up, you know, to plug, plug some of the messaging, really. And I guess, you know, um, if we look at it in broad terms, you know, today... And every day, on average, four women in Australia are going to be diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And actually, the, the mortality statistics are very sad because about three women die every day, too. So That's not good, is it? It's not. It makes ovarian cancer the most lethal gynecological cancer. And in the overall kind of league table of mortality for cancers, um, especially in women over 50, um, ovarian cancer is number six. You know, if you get breast, lung, colorectal, brain, pancreas, ovary. So what, so, so what are the messages of the Awareness Month? What, what, what message are we trying to get out there? Right, OK. But it's, um, you know, that there are risks. Um, as you get older, as with most cancers, it's more prevalent. Um, but not forgetting that, um, that, you know, actually young people are still at, at, at some level of risk of getting it. And we do get cases in quite young people. But I guess key message number one is cervical screening. Cervical cancer screening does not detect ovarian cancer. So many women have presented in the past saying, I've had a cervical, in the days of cervical smears, that they had those, and they thought it protected them against other gynecological cancers. Um, what we do know, and has, I think has been apparent over the last you know, 10 to 20 years, is that there is evidence that symptoms um, are present, be they vague and nonspecific. Um, and I think those are the important ones to bear in mind, such as you know, an increase in abdominal size or persistent bloating, mm-hmm. abdominal or pelvic pain, feeling full after eating a small meal, and needing to urinate often or urgently. These and are I, really I tough, aren't they? Because these are very, well, very non-specific kind of symptoms. Exactly. Every woman you know, and probably quite a few men, could, could tick some of those off, if not all of them. So what's so, the recommendation for women? If they're experiencing those right. admittedly rather vague symptoms, what should they be doing? Yeah. Well, if they're a change from the normal for them, and if they're persistent for more than a couple of weeks, it's a really good idea to go and talk to their GP. And, um, you know, the potentials there are for for going on and having a a, a blood test that can possibly pick up um, a large number of cases or to have a a, a specific type of ultrasound. Um, And I think we can also say, look, Ovarian Cancer Australia is an organisation that's been running for over 20 years and based here in Melbourne. Um, They have a helpline, they have various support resources and information and you can phone them up on 1300 660 334. 1300 660 334, thank you. And just finally, because this is an important question that I think confuses a lot of women. Is there any screening test for ovarian cancer? No, no there is not. Yeah. Yes, I mean, that is the tragedy that we've, we've been used to over the last you know, several decades of having mammography of you know, cervical cancer screening, um, some of which have proved to be extremely effective, but there is nothing. There is no test at the moment um, 
that's in any way effective for screening, for population screening. There, is a, there are some tests that are used in high-risk um, you know, women as a form of surveillance, but not for population screening, no. So the message we want to get out there is if you've got those symptoms, particularly if you're middle-aged or older as a woman, then get in and check it out with your doctor. Yes, But don't expect as, as every woman that there's some sort of regular screening test for ovarian cancer. Yeah. That's correct. Now, yeah. Prudence, thank you very much. I want you to stay on the thank line, you. please, because we're going to be I'm talking to. to you a little bit further. Um, thank you for bringing us up with those news. Uh, we'll be coming back to you right after this short break. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, Prudence, we were talking just now about ovarian cancer, but we're switching topics. What are you going to talk we about? We are. Yes, well, we're... let's talk about eating disorders, mm-hmm. right? I think um, there was, a, there was a, a study just published very recently in the last psychiatry, having a look at all the kind of, it did a review of all the sorts of research that's been done um, over quite a reasonable time period. Um, and I think, you know, there's worth some comments. So bearing in mind that, you know, eating disorders can be a quite a wide spectrum of conditions, but, but what we're perhaps most people know are anorexia nervosa and bulimia. Mm-hmm. And we know, I'm sure, that some of these, uh, you know, people who experience these conditions can be extremely ill and can even die. Um, and so and, just you know, before you go on, Prudence, just explain this study that was published. It was actually studying people. Was it a study of studies? It was a study of studies. It was a review of um, a large body of literature. So, in fact, they, um, they, they managed to uncover over 14,000 published and unpublished studies relating to, um, you know, sort of every sort of type of research. What was key to me, I think, was the first was they got ended up with 16 that were clinically sort of controlled trials, randomised trials. So the kind of gold standard of, of medical research in which, you know, um, uh, uh, that, that, you know, that the, the sample size, the number of people that they looked at was sufficient to get a statistically valid sort of answer. But they looked at um, comparing, for example, one treatment against another, um, where the diagnosis was absolutely kind of correct and very specific. Um, the protocols for the, for the sort of actual investigation were very well manualised and there were some very specific kind of measurement outcomes. So, so you're you telling me out of 14,000 yes, studies, yeah. there was only a handful that yes. seemed to be decent scientific research. That just seems extraordinary. I know. That's what that's the numbers in there. I know it is. I think um, it is, I suspect, amongst other things, it is very difficult to kind of formulate an effective kind of trial for this sort of um, for this sort of disorder. Um, I mean, anorexia, most of them were kind of driven around anorexia. Anorexia is um, a, a psychiatric disorder, and it's good we've got uh, Mojo with us because, you know, Mojo with us because you know, he's probably got some comments too. But it, and, and I think the thing is that these have very high mortality rates, right? You know, it's one of the most serious. Anorexia is one of the most lethal psychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and has suicide rates above those of things like major depression. And we know that there's a lifetime kind of prevalence of like as much as one, uh, one in 200, especially women, um, seem to be very, very susceptible to some form of eating disorder. 
because that, yes. that's, a, that's a pretty scary high rate for a, a disorder which you say has a high mortality associated yeah, with it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I hope you're going to give us some good news. You've got at least some studies oh. showing um, good scientific um, protocols. Uh, what, was, what was the conclusion that they came to? The large, well, look, some forms of interventions do seem to have uh, some degree of effectiveness. So there are some well-established um, treatment protocols, uh, you know, ones that come out of, one that's come out of the UK called the Maudsley model, which, which is for specifically, well, there's one for young people and there's one for, uh, uh, for adults. And these are kind of multi um, sort of factorial kind of treatment paradigms. So, so, you know, it's about having some sort of psychotherapeutic um, intervention. It's about getting people, um, you know, to understand the uh, importance of kind of aspects of nutrition and how to make up perhaps for deficits, kind of retraining their thinking about their body image and getting the support of their families um, in particular so that perhaps, you know, they can develop um, new kind of routines around their eating. Um, so, yes, look, there have been some sort of effective treatments and certainly those that are quite specialised, I think, seem to be more effective than broader-based uh, cognitive behavioural therapies. And actually, a lot of these things, um, because of the kind of nature of the controlled trial, were, were kind of based, uh, compared with what they call treatment as usual. So, so that would be like management of an individual by their GP with some general kind of education and some, some broad-based kind of psychotherapy. So, so it wasn't it, preparing so nothing. So I want to take you back to that Maudsley model because you mentioned yeah. um, psychological intervention with maybe some dietetic kind of uh, education yeah. and family therapy. Mm. I, what's notably missing from that is any kind of pharmacology, medication. Um, no, is, medication right. is medication not a part of the Maudsley treatment model? From what I've found, but by and large, medication has not been found to be effective as a, as a form of treatment for the eating disorder. So I'm going to so bring Motor in. I'm going to bring Motor in at that point. If I know as the psychiatrist with the prescription pads and his pen itching to write for his patients. He probably wants to tell me something. <laughs> pen poised and ready to go, Prudence. But uh, look, you're absolutely right. All the studies and research to date um, does not support the use of pharmacotherapy in eating disorders. It's um, all been um, relatively lacklustre in their if, um, efficacy. Mm. And, uh, yeah, look, I think supporting, you know, where, where somebody might have quite, you know, depression or severe anxiety as well. And I think that's possibly one of the things that um, I felt in the, looking at these studies. I mean, they're very focused, as they often are. So they were looking at things like body mass index, symptomology of eating disorder and so on but almost invariably there's something else going on you know there's there's other mental health issues um, be it some sort of history of trauma severe anxiety other sort of sort you know possible causes of depression that really also need to be addressed within the context I think of of the eating disorder it's not simply you know we just need to get this person to eat more Prudence, you're absolutely yeah. right, and I will also add that pharmacotherapy um, that are indicated in certain conditions, they can certainly be effective um, in uh, sufferers of eating disorder. It is a condition where um, sufferers are at higher risk of some of these comorbid conditions. So what that basically yeah. means is um, people who suffer from eating disorders can have higher rates compared to the general population of things like depression and anxiety, and these are highly effective, uh, highly treatable mm. conditions with 
pharmacotherapy or psychological therapy lifestyle behavioral strategies. So they are definitely worth treating with um, these treatments. Absolutely. Yeah, look, we can't see them in isolation. But I also picked up something. I just it was a sense of reading and through a number of different studies. And most of them, as I said, quite focus on body mass index and the sort of eating disorder symptoms as the goals of treatment. And they're really, yes, there's perhaps no attempt to understand what else is happening for the patient um, from their experience. There's also a, a strong trend to kind of dismiss that patient's experience because they have disordered thinking. You know, now there's, there's probably there's an element of truth in this because if you go, you know, into a starvation mode, you, your brain doesn't work properly anymore. But there, there was a kind of sense that there's, an, I felt, an almost an attitude that people with eating disorders, you know, do have disordered thinking, that they don't know what's good for them. And there is something of that kind of, yeah, paternalistic view that, that we, you know, we, we have to kind of, what, retrain them or something else without really perhaps understanding what's underlying this. So I'm, and going I to, kind of, so I'm going to yeah, throw that one to Moto if I can, because as, a, as an outsider within the medical profession, one of the things I've been taught is that the experience of the anorexic brain is this almost sort of circular reinforcement that by the time you lose enough weight, uh, you're getting a kind of dopamine reaction in the brain, which keeps this circular problem of starvation and the desire to remain underweight going and so that one of the reasons for focusing so strongly on weight is until we reverse that process you're not going to get anywhere so in a sense what you're maybe asking a sensible question prudence about paternalism mm -hmm. and treatment but unless we do that process of of getting the weight up as a primary focus then we actually can't reverse the sort of neurochemical processes that mm -hmm. are making it happen now i'm going to throw that one to moto is that a load of rubbish or is there something to that no there are definitely elements of truth in that there are a couple of things going on um in uh um, eating disorder, specifically anorexia nervosa, which is a um, eating disorder characterized by insufficient oral intake or excessive exercise and compensatory mechanisms such as exercise in order to keep the weight down. And a sentinel feature of this condition is people have a uh, irrational um, fear of weight gain and they can experience distorted imagery or perceptions of their um, body habitus. So um, even when they might be underweight or of a healthy weight range, they consider themselves to be excessively overweight and there's that drive to continue to lose the weight as a result. So you have this cognitive distortion that you have to battle. And the second thing that uh, we've touched on is um, in, uh, in, in the state of a in, in the state of starvation, um, the brain doesn't work properly. It is hard to um, compute. It is hard to process information. It is hard to weigh up information. Um, so that uh, serves as an additional barrier for people to um, better understand what's going on and um, challenge some of these thoughts that are inherent in these disorders. And Prudence, I want to come back to the study in that case because we've talked a bit about uh, anorexia where people have lost weight. A lot, of, a lot of people with bulimia, of course, while they, they purge and vomit, they maintain weight. Uh, yeah. Was there anything interesting or new that we discovered from that uh, research about people with bulimia? 
No, not specifically, actually. I couldn't really dig anything out. Most of it was focused really around the, the studies on, on anorexia nervosa. Um, and, um, yeah, no, I didn't dig anything up on that. But I thought, nevertheless, one of the things as well, just to put the, the, the big picture context on here, you know, again, was most of the, most of the sufferers here are women. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to question, you know, the prevalence of those sort of social pressures and conditions, conditions around idealisation of body shape and weight and the impact of fat shaming and the sorts of criticisms that are massively sort of prevalent through the media and everything else, which I think do feed into the causal factors here. And, you know, perhaps, you know, what, that's one of the things, obviously, we don't, we need to find ways to treat people who have got an eating disorder. But I wonder also how much we could be doing in trying to prevent them yeah, um, developing them in the, the first place. Yes. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't that be a lot easier? So, Prudence, what's new? What was new from that study? I struggled to find anything significantly new. I mean, the, the overall view was, well, yeah, you know, some, some treatments are marginally better than others, but it was quite difficult to find anything. I mean, you know, uh, I was say, actually, nothing. I didn't find anything new in it. Maybe I missed that bit, but... Well, what, it was a fairly bland conclusion so of a massive so one of the, review. One of the conclusions <laughs> I certainly take is they probably looked at 14,000 studies and only found a handful which they considered decent science. It means there's yeah. an awful lot of research being done um, that maybe is, is descriptive and maybe they are mm. missing some extremely valuable information because they're getting a bit too hardcore scientific paradigm about what they consider worth looking at. Uh, who exactly. Knows? Um, just, to, just to finish, because this is an incredibly important topic for people. Some yes. people listening to this might be uh, concerned or distressed. Um, do you have in front of you the telephone numbers where people can seek more help if they need it? Uh, I've got it. I wish you I did. Have so, you got them there? I, yes. Can you, oh, I'll beat on. you to it in that case. The, the it, Eating yeah. Disorders Victoria phone number is one three hundred double five zero. 236 that's the eating disorders victoria number 1300 236 and there's also the butterfly foundation which is 1800 4673 so do seek further help if this has raised issues for you prudence thank you um lovely to hear your voice hopefully next time we will see Great you here in the you. studio you look after Love yourself. To be, yes, I'm looking forward to it. All you right. too. C- carry yes, on thanks. eating well, exercising sensibly. Oh, and yeah. We'll talk Gonna to have you. breakfast. We'll talk to you another time. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And on the phone now, we've got Rainbow Doc. Rainbow, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Good morning. <laughs> How are things with you this morning? Oh, things are pretty bright and breezy. Sun's yeah. out. Beautiful day this out is a, This is a free zone. Tell us what you're talking about this morning. Um, yeah, I want to talk about a, a piece of research that's come out of Melbourne University, uh, published in the journal Demography, um, uh, about the the academic outcomes for children of same-sex parents. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been numerous studies over the years that um, that tell us that children of same-sex parents um, do really, really well in school. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a sense, 
this study isn't new. That's what this study has found. But the, the, the methodology of this is really interesting because they used a sample, a very large sample from the Netherlands. And you might ask the question, why on earth would you in Australia do a study on outcomes for children of same-sex parents using a sample from the Netherlands. Can I ask the you a reason, question? Why on earth would the University of Melbourne do a study of same-sex outcomes in the Netherlands? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're absolutely right. Of course we want to ask that question. I'm really pleased that you asked that question. Well, the answer is that in the Netherlands, um, there are there is the possibility of bringing large amounts of data from different sources together to look at the longitudinal um, impact of certain variables. Mm-hmm. Um, so this research was done on um, 1.4 million students of uh, different sex parents and over 3,000 children of uh, same-sex parents. Wow, That's okay. a pretty, That's a good pretty large yes. sample, right? Yeah. The other interesting thing is that, you know, the Netherlands is a country where attitudes towards same-sex parenting are extremely favourable. Mm-hmm. So if you want the results of this came from um, an environment which is very favourable and um, supportive of same-sex parenting. And they found that, you know, uh, quite significant differences in outcome. For instance, you know, um, children going on 11% more likely to to go on to higher further education from school. Mm-hmm. You know, on, on all outcomes, they the uh, children of same-sex parents did did better. And can I just ask you a question there, um, Rainbow? Because the obvious question is, well, did they um, allow for what the um, social class and educational achievements of the parents were, were they the same? Were they um, controlled between the same sex and the different sex couples so that um, there wasn't that confounder? They were able to control because it was such a large sample. Mm -hmm. So they were able to control for education level of the parents, for age, for uh, other socioeconomic um, uh, variables. So they were. So this is a, a really solid piece of research um, compared to some of those pieces that uh, Prudence Steele was talking about earlier. Um, and and hopefully, will you know, will help to uh, change attitudes, the attitudes that still exist uh, in this country in certain areas. You know, there's a there's a the very different environment that children of same sex parents are growing up in if they are, for instance, in the northern southern suburbs of Melbourne yes. compared to to some other areas of Australia. And we saw that you know a few years ago in yeah. the um, vote on equal marriage. So I really, um, want to, I, yeah, I really want to come to that in a second. Moto just wants to check something with you. Rainbow, yeah. really interesting research. Thank you for sharing that with us and uh, with the audience this morning. Um, what were the main outcome measures that we're interested in, such as um, graduation from a tertiary degree or how many A-pluses they get in their secondary school report card, etc. So what were the actual outcome measures they were interested in? And you're saying that uh, children of parents who are in same-sex relationships tend to do better than their demographic-controlled um, or adjusted um, 
uh, peers uh, of parents who are opposite sex. Um, and if yeah. that was the case, what was the magnitude? What were the magnitudes, I suppose, of the improvements? Uh, I don't have those in front of me. Um, <laughs> so thank you for asking that question. Um, but the, but the, the, they measured on the scores on the national standardised tests. That was the, the main measure that they used um, looking at this. Um, all, the, all the outcomes, all the, all the, what I can tell you is that it was, the differences were all significant. And you, so, and you mentioned that there was an 11% um, greater attendance at tertiary education. One of the questions then yeah. for myself is if we've, if we've allowed for the education and social class of the parents and so on, what's the explanation? Why would the kids of same-sex parents, when you've controlled for the, the parents otherwise, why would they do better? Well, one of the, the um, facts that is always, you know, um, cited in this that is, is that same-sex parents really, really plan to have their children. There are no children of same-sex parents that happen by accident. Mm -hmm. So there is more, um, I don't know, you know, you can interpret that as there's being more investment maybe in having children. You know, it's not easy to have children yeah. as a same-sex couple. It's not easy. It's not straightforward. Um, I'd actually like to flip this on its head mm -hmm. and say, what can we learn from this for uh, different sex parents? Because if parents, if same-sex parents are doing, if you want, better at this, even though we're only looking at certain outcome measures, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's kind of ableist in a sense this, this, <laughs> when we're looking at just those outcome measures. But um, what can, what can uh, different sex parents learn from this? You know, do you, maybe have, a, do you have an answer to that question? Well, maybe there should be a, a campaign to help parents be more uh, uh, deliberate, intentional in having children. You know, maybe um, we should be uh, flipping this research and not saying that children of same-sex parents um, do better. We should say that children of different sex parents do worse. I mean, you know, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but those nevertheless... Poor, those poor disadvantaged every, kids from the traditional nuclear family. Yeah, I mean, if, every time there is a piece of research, and I understand that the outcome is wanting to try and change attitudes and make uh, access to parenting easier for um, same-sex couples... But nevertheless, the process of this, every time there is a study like this, every time we talk about this kind of stuff, we're, we're, we're kind of bringing to light once again um, that it's not, it's, not so, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy to have, it's not straightforward for same-sex couples to have children. And there's a, there's a sort of nasty kind of leaves a nasty taste in the mouth when people are being discussed in this way. Okay, and you mentioned that this is research from an environment where actually it's very supportive for same-sex couples to have kids, but that, yeah. of course, the outcomes may not be the same in other environments. And use the example, perhaps, of somewhere in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, uh, parents of same-sex same -sex couples who have kids might not have the same experience. Um, do you know 
what that experience is like for people who come from a less supportive or less accepting kind of background? Well, children generally want to be the same as other children, you know. And so if there's not a support if there's not a supportive environment, there's potential for bullying. Um it's uh I can't give you the, the rates of this of bullying from from for children with same sex parents, but um it's 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 more likely to happen in areas where there are less same sex parents, you mm-hmm. know, in a school for instance, so that those children are visible because of their difference. Um, and that's always a challenge for children and for parents and also for teachers. Um, it'll also be interesting to know, um, Rainbow Doc, whether um, this, is, uh, this study is the first of its kind or whether something like this has been done um, in other countries and jurisdictions, particularly I'm thinking of the Scandinavian countries, which, like the Netherlands, um, have got you know, very robust and very well-established public health registries, right? Well, I, I find it interesting that we in Australia want to do this work <laughs> with that sample. Yes. I mean, yeah, that we need to do this work here. Um, the more, uh, it would be lovely if we didn't have to do this, if we didn't feel there's any need to do this research in Australia. So, I, I, yeah, I do wonder how much of that this work has been done in those countries that you mentioned. And and when it was done, whether it's still being done, or maybe there is no need. That would be nice. Wouldn't it be nice? And and Rainbow, I'm so grateful to you for being such an avid reader of the Journal of Demography. A pile of them are by my bedside. I haven't quite got round to them yet, but you've clearly... dived deep into it and unearthed this and I guess the the really positive message that comes out of this is that when you have a supportive environment then the outcomes for kids of same-sex parents at least in an academic sense when you measure it are at least as good and probably better than kids from more traditional backgrounds and that's got to be a a pretty good piece of news so thank you. I'd like to I'd like to say that when you have a supportive environment for any child yeah, the outcomes are going to be better. And and I think that's a lovely way to finish with that. Um, Rainbow, thank you very much for bringing that to our attention. Really lovely to have you on the line and hopefully have you in the studio next time. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And on the phone now, we have Misdiagnosis. Good morning, Miss D. Good morning. And you've been thinking about uh, the issue of people heading back to the gym and the basketball court uh, and how to prevent all those tweaks and strains that seem inevitable. Tell us what you've come up with. Well, Dr. Nick, it actually occurred because I, I took myself off to a body pump class, one of those sort of generic weights class that I, I haven't done, I confess, for a while mm-hmm. since COVID. It took me a little while to get back in the gym. And then the next three days, I could barely walk up the stairs. I was so sore. Mm-hmm. And I got thinking, you know, was there anything that I could have done to prevent this? And also, what's going on in my body that's causing me to be this sore after just, you know, doing sort of 40 minutes of lifting a couple of weights? It's a really good question. You're a healthy young woman and you've gone and done an exercise class and can barely walk a couple of days later. So let's talk about that first. What actually is the pathophysiology of that experience? Oh, you know, I love those questions, Dr. Nick. So have you heard of the term DOMS before? It's one of those things that 
What? I mean, often it's more of the, the kind of the gym bros throughout, oh, I've got doms, mate. Doms. No, no, Dom. I have no idea what a dom is. <laughs> Enlighten me. So it stands for delayed onset muscle soreness. And essentially doms is that pain that you get after doing heavy exercise mm-hmm. that causes you to be sore anywhere between 24 to 72 hours later. And the thing about DOMS is it's, you don't actually experience this pain directly after exercising. So it's not that you go to the gym and 15 or 20 minutes later you feel this you know, sore pain, you can't walk up the stairs. It's a delayed onset soreness. So it's normally 20, 24 to 72 hours later. Yes. Now, what's actually happening with this delayed onset soreness is that your, your motor units, your muscle fibres themselves, they're these incredibly complex, quite beautiful little contraptions made up of all sorts of little bits and pieces. But essentially what it boils down to in the pathophysiology is that your filaments, your actin and myosin filaments, which are the parts of your muscle units that actually cause the movement that allow you to pick up a weight, have become really stretched. Mm-hmm. And that stretching causes micro lacerations or very small tears in the muscle fibres themselves. Yes. Now, as anything that gets torn or essentially injured, there is an inflammatory response in the body and you get this mass release of different inflammatory molecules and cytokines and bits and pieces like this which causes inflammation around the area and can also cause pain. So that all makes sense, that you've done your exercise, you've done some micro-tearing, it hurts, there's inflammation and that sort of thing. And then the question is, is this good or is this bad? Yeah, exactly. So I went into the literature to have a look at, is is this sort of experience of DOMS, this soreness that you get, is this actually a, a pathological thing? And is this a signal to your body to say you actually overdid it? Or is this instead something that, you know, can be relatively healthy? And then the second part of the question is, is there anything that I could have done to prevent this soreness? Because it really got in the way when I was trying to, you know, sit down for dinner. So before you answer the question, I'm going to throw to Moto, who's clearly a Dom's experiencer. He's nodding like crazy. Moto. Oh, I was just very intrigued to hear all that misdiagnosis um, because the first part of what you explained all sounded really bad. You've got these inflammatory cytokines and molecules flowing through your, bu- your body. How can any of this be good for you? Great, great question. So the, what the research showed with this is that whereas, whereas if you have an injury such as you know, a crush injury, if you drop something on your foot and you have these sort of inflammatory cascades, due to an unnatural process, so an insult to the muscle that's not caused by the muscle itself, you would injure a vast proportion of the motor unit fibres of the muscle itself. With DOMS and with exercise-related injury, you actually only injure approximately 1% of the muscle. So even though it's really sore and it can get really stiff and we do have this inflammatory sort of cascade, it's only 1% of the muscle that's being injured. So the inflammation there is relative to that 1%, which still causes pain, but it doesn't cause a pathological process. The research shows that this this DOMS experience, it's not actually bad for your body at all. And it doesn't indicate that you've overdone it too much, unless potentially you need to run around after kids or something the next day and you physically can't do that. But it's not actually causing any injury to the muscle itself beyond those micro lacerations. And in fact, those micro lacerations can actually heal to cause the muscle to be stronger. So that's, that's one answer which says that it's not a bad thing, maybe a good thing. Turn the question around the other way. If you go to your pump class and you don't get that muscle pain in the next two or three days, does that mean you haven't done hard enough work? 
So not at all. It depends on the type of exercise that you're doing. So in order to get this, um, this, this is John's experience, you have to really, really overload the muscle itself. Now, you can cause injury if you do that too much, but DOMS is not a sign of injury. Okay. Likewise, if you don't end up experiencing DOMS, the delayed onset muscle soreness, it doesn't mean that you haven't done a good workout. It just means that you haven't put so much load on whichever muscle it is that would you know, be causing that DOMS to actually cause a mass load of microlaceration. So you can still have a really good workout. You can still lift weights, do all sorts of things, and not get that soreness. It's just if you go to the extreme of working out that muscle, you can get a, a sort of significant experience of DOMS. Okay, and just remind people what DOMS stands for. So that's delayed onset muscle soreness. Okay, so we've answered that one. When you go to your exercise class, if you're if, if you stiff as hell a couple of days later, that may not be such a bad thing. That may just be that you've really worked very hard, but it's not a necessary thing uh, for a good outcome from your workout. So the next question is this, this thing that, and it's a question I've often wondered, when I go and play tennis in the locker room, all these old blokes and women are sort of stretching and twisting and turning, and they spend five minutes doing that, saying, oh, I need to do this stretching to warm up before I play. Mm, Is there yeah. any proven benefit to doing that? So the short answer, Dr. Nick, is no. There's no evidence that we have to support the fact that stretching will reduce injury. Fantastic, because I always arrive <laughs> far too late to stretch, and so I just whiz in, get changed, go on court, and I always hope maybe I'm doing the wrong thing, but maybe I'm not. Yippee! So let me talk you through it, because just because there's no evidence, ah. it doesn't mean, it's not as black and white Don't as that. Don't let me down. Go on, So, <laughs> so I, I looked at There are a couple of Cochrane reviews on this. That's that really high-quality evidence um, sort of review journal. So there's a, there's a great Cochrane review on looking at whether stretching will actually reduce um, injury. And what they found is they put, they put sort of um, muscle pain. So this was looking at, does stretching reduce the pain of Don's the next sort of 24, 48 hours, week or so? And they put it on a scale of 1 to 100 for your pain. And stretching reduced your pain by one point on a 100-point scale. Okay. So it was, it was statistically significant, but it wasn't <laughs> clinically significant, yeah. which I thought was really interesting. If you look a bit further into the research about whether stretching or there's anything you can do to reduce injury, what the research shows, and this was a, um, a journal that was a journal article that was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in 2014, another systematic review of about 15 different papers, it shows that there are lots of different things you can do to reduce injury, and most of those things are strength training and proprioceptive training, so that's the balance training. Mm -hmm. But stretching on its own didn't reduce injury. Now, so that was our first answer, which is, no, stretching is not necessarily going to help you reduce injury. Okay. But we love it. It feels <laughs> great. The other thing about stretching is that there is this sense of what maybe we haven't been able to sort of fully prove in the literature or study really scientifically is what is the individual experience of pain and how does our sort of brain pain pathway actually work? Okay. So, so what I'm saying with that is, no, look, it's one point on a 100-point scale in a Cochrane systematic review. But stretching feels pretty good and most people really enjoy it. <laughs> no doubt. Misdiagnosis. I think you, uh, in your previous sentence, you addressed um, a query that I had in my mind for quite some time now, and that is when you look at professional athletes, whether they're basketball players or sprinters, um, and they do strength training. Um, they mm. are doing leg presses or 
um, push-ups and things like that. And, you know, I just sort of wondered to myself, if you're a basketballer and you're trying to be leaf and athletic and the less mass you carry, theoretically speaking, the higher you can jump to get that rebound or to do that slam dunk, whatever it might be, why do you need to pack on muscle? And I always thought it was, A, an aesthetic thing, B, maybe, you know, the bigger bulkier body allows you to barge your way past the opponents um, but I think what you're telling me is that that uh, building the strength and having the muscle to show for it I suppose um, actually does actually prevent injury that's very interesting yeah absolutely so um, there are a couple of studies that were published looking at lower leg injury in particular so with things like basketball and they found that strength training for your lower limbs can reduce injury by up to a third of football and basketball-like sports um, because it just means that you have that, the sort of the proprioception that you gain from that extra muscle mass and doing those that extra workout in your lower limbs can actually protect the joint from an overuse or a twisting injury, whereas if you have less muscle mass, you've just got less to protect it. I think that, I think what you've told us is music to my ears, misdiagnosis. <laughs> uh, I mean, I love the fact that regular strength training and looking after your body is going to reduce injury. That makes sense to me. I remember being taught by a physio that um, the research really showed that for professional athletes, a full body warm up and a full body stretch, a 45 minute process, is what has been proved to prevent injury in professional athletes. Which is why you see these people warming up an hour. Before before they play their sport, because um, that was what I was told for professional athletes. But of course, most of us who are amateurs don't do that. And now I feel good about the fact I just whiz into the locker room, quick change, and go on court. Misdiagnosis, you've they, made my day. They could have spent at least <laughs> half that time doing leg presses. <laughs> Thank you so much, Misdiagnosis. Lovely to have you. Look forward to seeing you in the studio next time. Bye for now. Oh, looking forward to being there. Thanks, Dr. Mick. Thank you very much. It's nearly time to wrap up, so it's just time to say thank you to our expert panel. Prudent Steer, Rainbow Doc and Misdiagnosis and Tomoto, wonderful to see you in the studio or just tell us when's your first show next Sunday, yeah. be there or be square Moto will be with us next week of course thanks as always to Panel Beta Hi, this is Panel Beta thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy a weekly radio show dedicated to health medicine and well-being broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.